to Beer Me Radio. I'm your host, Sarah Jane. Every week I will have a guest on the show to discuss different parts of the beer world, from brewers, importers, educators. This will allow us to examine the dynamic world of beer through different lenses. Whether you're new to beer or a seasoned professional, we will have something for you. Listeners, welcome back. I am very excited for this show. Um, I have a longtime friend um, who is able to be on the show. Like I said previously, because we are virtual, I have the flexibility of having people call in from all over the country, all over the world. So I'd like to welcome John Lundbaum. He is the division manager for Colorado, Texas and New Mexico uh, with Be United. And he is based in Austin, Texas. And for those of you who listen to the show know this is one of my all-time favorite cities. John, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Hey, Sarah Jane. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with Be United, uh, this is an import company started in 1994. They have some of the greatest beers on their portfolio. I've been a big fan for a very, very long time. Not only do they have an impressive beer selection, but also cider, sake. I mean, John, can you tell our listeners just a little bit about Be United and why it's so wonderful? Uh, Sure. Um, Well, when uh, my boss, Matthias, started Be United, uh, his first goal was to import to the United States every beer that the beer writer Michael Jackson had rated five stars. So Michael Jackson said these were the best beers in the world. So Matthias's idea for the company was let's bring them to the United States. So that was, uh, yeah, the Schlenkel and Merzen, Einbecker, My Erbach, Schneider, Aventinas, J.J. Lee's Harvestdale, the Porterhouse Oyster Stout, Eriga Alt Beer, I think, or maybe the Sticker. Mm-hmm. Um, and I might be missing or forgetting something, but that's the basic rundown. So Matthias started on that journey. Uh, in time, we did import all those beers to the U.S. And then over the past, God, almost what, 20 years or so, we sort of changed and adapted with the times. And as you said, yes, we import beer, we import uh, cider, mead, sake, uh, some spirits. And yeah, it's a really diverse, really exciting, really fun portfolio to work with. Nice. So I kind of want to center this show around what it means to be a beer importer, kind of how that's different from the rep. Like, you know, if you're a, if you're a bar owner, a restaurant owner, and you're calling, you know, your distribution rep or something like that, kind of how is that different? How is your role different from that? I'd say the main way it's different is in the diversity of portfolios. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know offhand how many producers we represent several dozen. And, you know, sort of the nature of managing and sort of utilizing that diversity has changed a lot over the years. You know, when I first started with the company, God, 13 maybe years ago, a lot of our focus was on the, you know, capital C, capital B craft beer market. That's changed a lot due to the proliferation of craft breweries here in the U.S. And it's gotten to the point where a lot of our biggest successes uh, really operate outside of sort of the craft beer market. One example for us was Hidachino. Uh, we first got keyed on to the Kiyuchi family and to Hidachino Nest Beers um, when they started winning some World Brewing Awards, I think at the World Beer Cup. Mm-hmm. And no one had heard of this brewery. No one knew what it was. No one knew about Japanese craft beer. And again, my boss, Matthias, was very uh, forward thinking and to reach out to them and to see what was going on. We brought them in really catering to the craft beer market. When Hidachino first launched in the US, it was extremely craft beer focused, really for the nerdiest of craft beer nerds. And naturally over the years, it sort of migrated to the fact, or to the point where, you know, the vast majority of Hidachino and Kiyuchi products are going to Japanese and Asian fine dining Mm -hmm. um, or Japanese and Asian off-prem, which is fantastic. And it's, it's, that's sort of shown us 
other market opportunities away from sort of the craft beer world and beer geeks. So having this diversity of product, now we have products from Mexico that, um, while you know obviously do well in craft beer markets, are really targeted for Mexican fine dining. Or we have this mead called Viking Blood that's insanely, unbelievably popular right now. And Yes. Doesn't operate, yeah, and doesn't really <laughs> operate in the way that other meads do in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And so, and it's it's sort of our role is different in that in having such a wide and diverse portfolio, we're really managing um, a wider and more diverse array of clientele and um, sort of functions out in the marketplace as compared to a local craft brewery. Yeah, you all definitely have some diversity in the fact that I mean, I remember when I was in New York at Eleven Madison Park and I was managing that beer program. I mean, I could get all this amazing vintage JW Lees. Um, you all had some phenomenal, you know, rare bottles from Berfical uh, Lover Beer. And then you still had the just classic uh, Schneider and Sons beer that would be able to translate throughout most of the menu um, and was just super, you know, easygoing beer. Uh, easygoing in the sense that it can pair with everything, but, you know, between all the history and everything, probably not like super, super easygoing. Yeah. I mean, I think a wonderful (laughs) example of that is Reisdorf Kolsch. I mean, Reisdorf Kolsch is our number one draft item. Um, You know, Reisdorf, like a lot of German breweries, they make the one product, they make the Kolsch. And Michael Jackson said it was the best best Kolsch, so it's the one we've worked with. On one hand, it's very simple, very approachable, almost like a crossover kind of items. And it's something that can appeal to people who aren't necessarily interested in super fancy, crazy beer, but it's a has a lot of beer. Exactly. Yeah. But it has a lot of depth. It has a lot of complexity. It has, it's an amazing product, but sort of has that more broader appeal. You know, it's funny. You mentioned 11 Madison where, where we met. Um, it was, it was before your time when I was working with Kirk there, but I remember, um, one of our breweries we work with is a Belgian brewery called Brasserie à Vapor. And they're one of the two most historic Belgian Saison breweries. Um, Saison Dupont sort of, is the most historic surviving uh, Belgian brewery in sort of the unspiced uh, saison category, and mm-hmm. Brasserie à Vapor is the most historic in the saison spice category. And the brewmaster of Brasserie à Vapor says his beers aren't meant to be drunk until they've been bottled like twenty to thirty years, which is an insane thing to say. But I don't necessarily disagree with him. But we got maybe usually like, saisons aren't what people are like. Yes, those are the things you should age. Yeah, Brasserie à Vapor is such an <laughs> odd specific example of so many things. But we got like two cases of this like 20 or 30 year old Saison. And, you know, the deal was because we have a distribution license in New York, the deal was like, we're not giving this to any other distributor. If you want to hand sell a bottle or two to your most A plus accounts, feel free to do so. So I got in touch with Levin Madison and said, Hey, I got this unbelievably rare, special, singular thing. Would you be interested in two bottles? And Kirk said, yeah, sure. And so uh, I hand delivered them to him. We sold them through our distribution license. And then Kirk called me the next day and said, yeah, I sold both bottles last night. I was like, what? He's like, we had a fat cat or a shark or a whale or whatever come in and wanted a beer that he could get nowhere else and was unbelievably special. And he could only have it at 11 Madison Park. So I sold him one bottle and then he bought the other one. (laughs) And that was one of my favorite things about doing with 11 Madison Park. I don't know if there's another restaurant that was operating at that level that uh, had that much interest or dedication to a beer program at the time. Yeah, I believe you sold me an entire vertical of vintage uh, Lover Beer Magnums. Oh, yeah. And, and I drank one yeah. of them at, uh, for lunch at your <laughs> restaurant one time with uh, Jerome from Brasserie de France Montagne. Yes. Yeah. Oh, man. That's another, one, <laughs> another great brewery out of the Jura region. 
Now, the, the thing that I really love about um, Be United, aside from the portfolio, is kind of how creative you all have gotten over the years. Um, so can you describe to our listeners the there's a method that you all use in the way that you transport beer. It's very important for the freshness um, and for, you know, how the beer is transported. Yeah, absolutely. So, oh boy, probably about, I'd have to go back and notice maybe 10 years ago, 12 years ago, something like that. Um, Industry-wide, the beer industry started to see a massive shift towards draft. This is not just us. This is domestic breweries. This is other importers. Just draft became so much more in demand and so much more important. And for a domestic brewery, obviously, that's no problem. But for us as importers, what we had was a fleet of several hundred, maybe a thousand kegs that we were sending all over the world for our very small artisan breweries to fill and then ship back to us. And while that system worked, it was incredibly inefficient. And also, the keg turnaround time was incredibly slow. That entire process for one keg would take almost a year. Now, some other importers look to solve this problem by using one-way kegs, by using um, recyclable kegs or disposable mm-hmm. kegs. Or, Which um, are hard to work with, uh, from an operator have, standpoint. Yeah, I have never been a fan of operating with them. And also, even if they're advertised as recyclable, I don't know if um, they're necessarily being recycled. And we're more of the uh, reduce-reuse type of people. So um, my boss, Matthias, and his team came up with a really ingenious solution, which is we uh, worked with a company in England that designed uh, temperature and climate-controlled bulk liquid tankers for shipping orange juice. Mm-hmm. Orange juice being another uh, substance that's very temperature-sensitive and also uh, fairly acidic. I mean, beer is not as acidic as orange juice, but alcohol is pretty acidic. So with these, this company, we developed a fleet of temperature and climate-controlled bulk liquid tankers. The large tankers each have they're the size of a 20-foot um, container, and each container has four separate compartments of 35 hectos, and each compartment is separately regulated as to temperature and pressure. So we, instead of shipping our kegs all over the world, we ship these containers all over the world. They're filled. They come back to the U.S. very quickly. Instead of customs seeing a pallet and seeing you know, whatever, 80 cases of beer, they see this thing, which is essentially like four, bo- four very large bottles of beer. So it clears customs very quickly. It gets to our facility very, very quickly where uh, we keg it. And that way we can get incredibly fresh beer to the marketplace. I think in many instances, our beer is getting to the marketplace fresher than a lot of domestic breweries. From there, we've sort of branched into other projects with our uh, tank container program. So we have um, a program where we take this incredibly fresh beer and put into barrel for barrel maturation in our facility or blending in our facility. And we also have a canning line. So we're able to can these beers. And that's been uh, really incredibly successful to the point where we've built up some canned product lines that are now being canned overseas for shipment just because of uh, volume. So that was actually my next question was, I mean, you had mentioned that previously there was a huge boom in in draft beer, but as of late, can is where it's at. Um, And you're seeing a lot of demand for cans, especially in that off-premise, I mean, especially with this past year, was booming. This helped you respond to that, I'm assuming. Oh, absolutely. And also uh, having the flexibility of the way our system is set up, you know, when the pandemic hit and essentially like every single customer in the United States said, no draft, please, no kegs, please, we were able to move a lot of the liquid that we had in keg into can and sort of refocus our efforts that way. I mean, it's been a huge shift, and the the main way we've been able to be successful is the flexibility in how we operate. 
So do you all have anything new coming out in cans that I can look forward to in the D.C. area? Oh, sure. Especially if you're in D.C. Down here in Texas, things are a little more difficult, but D.C. is no problem. You know, the first thing I'd say is that last year, and you know, the timing on this wasn't great because of the pandemic, mm-hmm. but um, we launched a craft brewery from Mexico City called Monstro de Agua, uh, or you know, Water Monster, translated. And we're really excited about these guys. It's a very, very small brewery on the south rim of the Mexico City Basin. So it's a fairly remote, fairly rural area of Mexico City. And their brewer, Matias, is making really, really interesting beers. They're all you know, really sort of keyed around Mexican traditional ingredients and Mexican food culture. And most of the beers, not all, but most of the beers he makes actually use agave as a primary sugar source along with malted barley. Um, very specifically, he's using the type of agave that's used to make pulque. Um, so we got brought in bottles of these beers uh, early 2020. Again, I've seen these in craft beer establishments, and but this is really something that we think is going to be really gangbusters for you know Mexican fine dining, where there aren't necessarily high end options from Mexico available in the beer market. So we brought these in in bottle, but through the temperature and climate controlled system I mentioned earlier, we've brought in smaller tanks of these beers for kegging and for canning in the U.S. So we now have cans of all their brands available as well as kegs. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Well, it's a a little sneak peek to the episode that will follow yours, as I believe uh, Mateus will be a guest on the show. Oh, the can is beautiful. I know this is an audio medium, but I thought Sarah and Sarah Jane show you the can. The can, for listeners, the can is beautiful. The branding branding is on point. The colors are, are great. The font is beautiful. So... Yeah, the, the, the name Monster de Agua is named after the axolotl you see here. Oh, yeah, um, the little yeah. sea creature. Yep, so it's a lizard, I believe lizard, that's indigenous to the area of Mexico City where the brewery is located and an animal that's very prominent in Mexican folklore. So they named the brewery after that and it's featured prominently on their labels. Nice. So, you know, for an import company, you kind of have to be on the cutting edge of what's next and looking at different countries and different cities that are expanding their craft beer programs. I feel like Be United is really good about kind of keeping ahead of the trends and kind of spotting what's going to be, you know, the next big thing. Is there a city or area in the world that you're particularly excited about or you're just starting to see little bleeps of life there with craft beer? That's a really interesting question. You know, it's, right now is looking at specific areas in the U.S., it's really, really hard to talk about that because the past year has been so bonkers, bananas crazy. Yeah. You know, I'm down here. I was the New York City rep for Be United for seven or eight years before moving down here to Texas. And New York City is an incredibly specific market. I mean, I, I forget the exact number, but it's something like 90 to 95% bars and restaurants. There's some stores to take home, but just quite frankly, no one in New York City is doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, down here in Texas, historically, it's been a mix of bars, restaurants, and, and stores to take home. But man, the stores to take home culture has really been a major asset for Texas in the past year. I can say geographically, a lot of what we're seeing is sort of tracks population growth, to be perfectly honest. Like mm-hmm. uh, when we first launched in Texas six or seven years ago, Houston was the biggest market of the major cities in Texas. Houston's still doing great, but as a lot of the oil money and oil jobs have left Houston for other areas, you've seen the Houston numbers sort of not compete as well to a city like Austin, which is experiencing, you know, cuckoo banana growth right now as far as tech coming in and, and whatnot. Also, you know, a city like Baltimore, while it's always had a really robust beer culture, is just doing crazy good right now, really, really blowing up. 
Um, California yeah. is an unbelievably strong market for us. Yeah. As far as all over the world, I mean, the last year has been so unbelievably weird and difficult. Yeah. It's really hard to get a grasp on like what any sort of international craft beer community is doing right now. You know, and in the past, you know, even six months, it's been kind of crazy. I remember, so in November 2020, the press broke that Shelton Brothers, which is another import company, went bankrupt, closed, closed up shop. And they have some amazing pieces to their portfolio. I mean, it was all over any craft beer news. That was what anybody was writing about for pretty much the month of November. It was one of those moments where you're like, okay, this is, there are some, there are some real side effects here. I mean, I feel like, you know, they really thrived on on-premise. So like, you know, in restaurant and that kind of thing, sales. And I think that was really devastating. This may be too much insider information. So if you can't answer, you don't have to. But are there any chances that you all would be picking up some of the brands that, that they that they represented? They had some pretty big names out of Belgium, Cantillon, Dreyfontaine. Yeah, I, uh, I think what you were hinting at is correct, that I can't really comment on any of that. But what can I say? I will say that when a company goes out of business, when a company declares bankruptcy, there is a lot of contracts and a lot of red tape and a lot of very, very big complications. Mm. <laughs> uh, I'm not in a position to comment on Shelton at all in one way or another. You do not have to. I'm and, sorry. I put uh, you nope. on the spot here. No, I don't, I don't feel on the spot. I just want to be honest. <laughs> but like bankruptcy is really heckin' complicated. Mm-hmm. All the breweries that were involved with Shelton are going to be tied up in that situation for a while is, is what I think. I don't know, I think. Yeah. I mean, personally, when I look at the breweries Shelton imported, I mean, they're some of my favorite beers in the world. Mm-hmm. Although, to be perfectly honest, if there's one beer I don't import that I would like to, it's Orval. Yeah. Orval is just about my favorite beer on the planet that we don't import. Yeah. Not going to happen, but that's okay. I'll just drink it. <laughs> Every March, was it Orval Day is the usually around the 20th or 21st? I'm aware that there is an Orval Day. I have no idea yeah. what it is. It usually... <laughs> No, I remember it because it usually falls around my mom's birthday, which is March 23rd. So it's always a good excuse to get her to drink Orval, which she loves. <laughs> that's, a, that's good. Um, my dad's birthday was Christmas. <laughs> so I, I've never forgotten that one. but <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so totally switching gears here on beer. Something that I did want to bring up. You are not just a beer person. You exist in other in other worlds, and you're a whole person, which I which I admire about you. But you have a, a band, and you make really cool music. Oh, thank you. The uh, John Lundbaum and the Big Five Chord. You guys have put out two albums: Harder on the Outside and Beats by Balto Volume One. And you play jazz guitar, and it's outstanding music. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, I, I grew up in music and got my undergraduate in jazz guitar and then went to the Manhattan School of Music in their master's program. Big Five Chord and I have actually released nine albums over okay, the years. Okay, so yeah. my research was nope, very that's poor. Fine. That's fine. <laughs> uh, it's like I started music before the internet was a thing. I guess the internet existed, but like iTunes and, and downloading music wasn't a thing. So I'm not sure how much of that survives. But yeah, we released our first album in 2003. Mm-hmm. And then when I was living in New York all those years, we kept playing and touring and releasing albums in sort of this avant-garde jazz world. Yeah, and when I moved to Austin from New York, my goal was to sort of find some way to replicate Big Five chord or find some way to sort of live in the jazz and improvisational music worlds. And that's been uh, relatively successful. Obviously, the past mm-hmm. 18 months have not been. 
But one thing that's been really interesting in moving to Austin is I've gotten more away from sort of jazz and jazz guitar and much more into bluegrass banjo. Oh, that's awesome. So I... Yeah, I used to serve on the board of the Central Texas Bluegrass Association, and now I handle their membership and website. I run the Central Texas Bluegrass slash Oscar Blues Sunday Jam Session that's starting up again next week. Oh, cool. Yeah, and when I'm not doing my beer job, I'm or you know, or being with my family, I'm I'm playing bluegrass these days, which is which is really fun. So the first Beats by Balto album was sort of a side project that my buddy Brian and I did after I moved down here that we sort of were able to mail back and forth, and we actually finished our quarantine project which is Beats by Balto Volume 2, which, mm. again, like we sort of recorded tracks and wrote some music and sent it around to all our friends. And that's coming out in November on Chant Records. So excited about that, but uh, haven't quite started the press cycle yet. It starts now. Check it out <laughs> on Spotify. <laughs> yeah, listeners, Beats by Balto Volume 2, coming out soon. No, that's wonderful. Yeah, definitely a big fan, and I'm excited to hear there's going to be more banjo, because... <laughs> That's really, that's really my jams, for sure. You know, I've been playing avant-garde jazz for my entire adult life, and now playing more bluegrass is nice. Like, people want to listen to it. It's, you have crowds, you have people who are enthusiastic. It's much, much improved. I feel like when I'm listening to jazz that doesn't have vocals or isn't something that I'm familiar with when it's completely new, there's so much prep that goes into it. Like, I have to have the right cocktail. There needs to be the right lighting. Like, you have to, like, really get myself into a headspace. It's not something I can just, like, turn on and, like, disregard. That's just not happening. You know, it's funny. Years, uh, Some years ago, I'd have to, I guess it was about seven years ago, I made a, I decided to do a live double album. So mm -hmm. the idea was we would, you know, set up a live recording situation and, you know, get people out and then record it that way. And a lot of my friends who came out to that were friends who were not from the jazz world. And part of the deal was if you came out to the live recording, then when the album came out, you got a copy of the album. And the non-jazz friends I have were pretty much split down the middle. I'd say about half said that they didn't know what to expect, but loved it live in the room and like really appreciated the energy and the feel of it. And then the other half said they had no idea what the hell was going on. Sorry, no idea what the heck was going on. I apologize for not allowed to swear on this thing. No, you can curse. It's fine. <laughs> All right. Hell it is. They had no <laughs> idea what the hell was going on. But when they got the album and listened back, it made sense. I don't know. Those are two very uh, different and distinct reactions to it, which is kind of fun. Nice. Love it. Well, definitely uh, check out as many albums as you can possibly find two to nine um, <laughs> on Spotify or uh, iTunes or wherever you get your music. So I just, I've got a couple like kind of fun, funny questions for you, you know, to kind of end it on like a super light note. Anytime, shoot. So first, what is the beer that got you through the pandemic? What is the beer that got me through the pandemic? That's such an interesting question. Thank you. I, you know, the honest truth is I don't drink a ton of beer. Mm -hmm. um, I have drunk enough beer for several lifetimes. I mostly drink wine and spirits. I mean, you can answer like what cocktail no, guy. Well, you should, like, that's you know, not the worst thing in the world. No, it's fine. Actually, I, I think I have a pretty good answer. So we, okay. well, that's a good answer. I think I have an answer. We, <laughs> um, another brewery we recently started importing is called Brewery Plonk. Okay. And as you mentioned before, we represented Schneider and Son Brewery for, you know, 20 years or something like that. We no longer represent Schneider for the US, but that gave us a really nice opportunity to start working with Brauri Plonk. We've been aware of Brauri Michael Plonk for a long time. They are the most winning brewery in the history of the World Beer Cup. And they're sort of like the gold standard for like a current or modern Bavarian half of Weizen. And we love their beers, but obviously if we have if we're working with Schneider, we're not going to do that. But now we're able to bring them into the US. And the beer that they are most famous for and most well known for is their Heller Weizenbach. So it's a eight something percent golden Bach uh, wheat beer. 
And I was familiar with the, the name Brawry Michael Plonk, but I had not actually had their beers. And when I first tasted this Hellerbach, oh man, I have not been excited about a beer like this in so long. It's so, so good. I mean, it. I, I would. I love all my children equally, so I wouldn't say it's like my favorite beer <laughs> in our portfolio. But I have not been as excited about a new beer like this in so so long. It's really beautiful and really spectacular. Nice. Um, so I don't know if I got it through the pandemic, but that was like a really bright shining light in the past eighteen months. That's awesome. All right. Well, yeah. I'll definitely keep my peepers out for that. And then this, I think you will answer this probably better than anybody else I'll have on the show. What brewery? in the entire world can you just not wait to get back to you're so excited this is this is the this is the brewery that you're just like stoked to go back to when the world opens and money's no object yeah can i give you three answers yes (laughs) (laughs) um okay number one my favorite place to drink beer on the planet earth is at um zoom irriga in dusseldorf Okay. Uh, for listeners who might not know, like in Germany, basically from the day you're born to the day you die, you drink one beer and it's the beer that's made in your hometown. And in Bavaria, mm-hmm. that's Helles, unless you want a Dunkel or a Weizen or, Weiz- or Hefeweizen. But in the town of Dusseldorf, it's alt beer. Um, alt beer, alt meaning old, old beer. So it's specifically called that because it's still a top fermenting style. One of the rare top fermenting beer styles in Germany. And alt beer is unbelievably good. Before I became a beer professional, when I was a cheese professional, I remember there was a brewery in New Jersey called Heavyweight that has moved on, God, 15, 18 years ago. Last I heard, he um, had a brew pub and pizza place in Philadelphia. But Heavyweight used to make a beer called Stickum Jeb. That was a take Mm -hmm. on the Sticka, which is a stronger version of alt beer served a couple times a year. But anyway, the physical building of Zoom Iriga not only has like one of my favorite beers on the planet, but just like this unbelievably specific food culture, this the, the drinking culture, the the way the architecture and the buildings and the the feeling in downtown Dusseldorf is like nothing else. So that's one. Um, nice. Two would be Akschlenkola. Um, Schlenkola is the world's most historic smoke beer brewery located in Bamberg. Probably hands down my favorite beer. Oh, I'm like, so glad to hear hands that. Hands down. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing else remotely like it on the planet Earth. No. Um, in my opinion. And I'm I, like, without fail, always, always can drink that beer. That's great. Anytime. Yeah. I mean, and, and Bamberg is so interesting because Bamberg is one of the few cities in Germany that wasn't destroyed during World War II. So it still has historic German architecture. And Akschlenkola is right in the middle of town. It's got the most interesting beer and cuisine that goes so well with this incredibly specific weird beer. I would love nothing more than to be in Bomberg right now at Akshlankola. <laughs> that, that's so wonderful. And if I had to choose a third one, it would be to visit um, Brasserie de Franche Montagne in Jura, Switzerland. Mm. Their brewery is not as uh, historic, and the brewery itself doesn't have as much sort of old world character. It's you know a much more modern brewery, but mm-hmm. their brewmaster owner, Jerome, is, you know, one of my better friends and one of my favorite people in the world. And I would love nothing more than to uh, hang out with him and drink some beer. I'm actually going to eat some cheese and eat some cheese. Every time I go there, we have the raw milk cheese orgy where we have all the Mm. uh, unpasteurized cheeses that are illegal in the U S and sometimes he cooks me horse steak and it's a wonderful thing. I have some passport issues right now, but if I get my passport issues sorted, I will be in Madrid in a week. Oh, nice. uh, Yeah. And Jerome may come meet me in Madrid. So fingers crossed. Well, tell him I said hi. I there was a time. There was a time back in the day where I had a dream to go work at his brewery for like a year. He'd still have you. Oh man. Yeah, we saw you at Eleven Madison for Jerome's fortieth birthday. That you was a get blast. you get to that point in your life where you can't just drop everything and go make beer in Jura. <laughs> like it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but my that's kid, fine. My, my kids would not be happy. <laughs> yeah, I know. 
Just like go brew beer, eat cheese. Like that's just, that's the dream. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> How about you? Where do you want to go? Well, so I, I, I desperately, I've never, I've never been to Bomberg. So oh. that's like, that's like number one on my list of like places that like I desperately want to go. Yeah. Um, but going back to a brewery. So you actually set me up at Dodol. Oh yeah. In Belgium. And it was this just pristine beer moment. There's a bunch of like kooky, fun, like cartoon artwork everywhere. But like the brewery itself has this kind of very rustic setting and there's like a big fireplace in the middle. But then everything is like glass and it looks out on this beautiful meadow. And you just sit there and you drink this perfect beer and you look out on the meadow and there's like fun little cartoon pictures everywhere. It's like visual brain candy while you're just drinking perfect beer. Yeah, 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 that's an A plus choice. That's that's it's a good one. But I think I would also and this might happen at some point, to be honest, Jester King, uh, right outside Austin, I've had some of my more memorable beer experiences there, eating pizza, watching goats, drinking beer. Yeah, I don't know if there's a more beautiful brewery in the world than Jester King. They've done such an amazing job with that place. I Love going there at every chance I get. I just get a, a giant bottle of Le Petit Prince, and, which is like, what, 2.8% ABV? Yeah, it's low. Or something yeah. like that. And just eat a bunch of pizza and people watch, and it's perfect. My favorite beer from them, I think it's called La Vion Rose. I have to check. They make a, a raspberry sour, but then when they take the beer off the raspberries, they do a second beer on the raspberries again. Mm. And that beer, the, the second use raspberry beer, I think it's Le'Veon Rose. If anyone from Jester King is listening, please get in touch. Um, is like, <laughs> is just mind bogglingly good. I have a bottle yeah. somewhere in this room. <laughs> somewhere around the beer cave. Yeah, behind well, the banjos maybe. <laughs> John, thank you so much. It's been wonderful catching up and talking with you about all things beer and music. I really appreciate it. Uh, Sarah Jane, anytime. It's so great to see you. Uh, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Beer Me Radio. Feel free to reach out at Beer Me Radio on Instagram, beermeradio at gmail.com. Like, subscribe, all those things everywhere you get your podcasts. And we will see you in two weeks. Cheers. Cheers.